0: Welcome to the New Books and Popular Culture podcast. I'm Professor Matt Sinkowitz of Boston College, and I'm the host of the channel. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to do a little housekeeping. Uh, if you have any comments for the show, or if you'd like to suggest a book for us to review uh, and speak to the author of, uh, please send me a tweet to at MediaStudied. Uh, also, we are available on iTunes, so if you'd like to rate, review, or subscribe, it would be very much appreciated. Uh, this week we have from the University of Mich- Michigan, Uswan Punatambekar, uh, and he will be discussing his recent book, available now from NYU Press, From Bombay to Bollywood: The Making of a Global Media Industry. Uh, in this book, Uswan uh, takes us into the world of the uh, the globe's largest cinema industry the Bollywood cinema industry, uh, and asks us to look at it from a variety of new perspectives, crossing some of the traditional borders of scholarship and uh, understanding, uh, having us look transnationally, transmedially, uh, and crossing all sorts of borders in exciting and uh, profound ways. Uh, welcome to the show, Oswin. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh before we talk about the actual content of the program, uh could you give us a little background on yourself and the project? Um what was it that brought you to the study of of Bollywood? What brought you to uh this particular book?
1: Sure. So, um The project really began as a master's thesis uh, in the Comparative Media Studies Department at MIT. And for the master's thesis, I did a six-month ethnography in which I uh, spent time with and interviewed 10 immigrant families from South Asia. Six of them were middle, upper middle class families, full working class families, trying to understand the relationship between their consumption of media from the homeland, from India in this case, and their sense of cultural identity as immigrants in the South Asian-American diaspora. And as I wrapped up that project, it became clear to me that it's not just immigrants who are increasingly engaging with media from the homeland, but that industry professionals in cities like Bombay were actively thinking about immigrant audiences as an emerging and very important emerging lucrative market as well. And so that's what I decided to pursue um, in the long run for the PhD. Uh, which which I then went on to the University of Wisconsin at Madison in the Media and Cultural Studies Department. And that's where I started doing some of the field research towards this project. And that laid the groundwork for it. And um, even at that point, even with the PhD, I was still caught up in thinking about this project in terms of identity, in terms of immigration, and in terms of fan practices. Um, And once I moved away from the PhD, um, I'm now a professor at the University of Michigan. This was my first job after the PhD. I did subsequent fieldwork, and the book became more focused on industry dynamics and logics. So that's where the book sort of began and slowly changed, evolved from being a book about media and migration to being a book about how a media industry from a post-colonial context begins to claim the global as its status in the world.
0: Hmm. Uh, One of the most interesting and, and really engaging parts of the book is the sheer breadth of sources. Uh, you have spoken to industry insiders, you have been uh, at major events uh, for the industry, you've done a, a tremendous amount of uh, primary document analysis, and of course the book also uh, includes some really uh, insightful looks into particular films from a sort of textual analysis perspective. Uh, you know, there is, this is a, a giant topic, of course, Bollywood, and you're looking at it from an international perspective, it sort of even makes it broader in some ways. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about uh, trying to corral all that information, about, uh, you know, how do you sort of tame the sheer mass of of data that you're working with trying to do this study?
1: Sure. Um, I guess I should start by saying that uh, my approach to any project, and this one in particular, is strongly shaped by what one might loosely call a Madison uh, School of Media Studies, which always insists on understanding any one particular domain, be it media texts or audiences or industries in relation to each other. It's sort of an integrated approach, which always takes into account texts, audiences, industries, and situating them very carefully within very particular social and historical contexts. So the book, even though it's focused primarily on industry dynamics, it there's a recognition that... Industry practices can also be read through some of the texts that industries generate, things like PR reports, press kits, um, or when you attend, let's say, an industry convention, It's one has to be careful not to accept what one sees there at face value, that the data that you generate from your own participation in a, in a convention, from an interview with an executive and so on, are also, in one sense, texts to be interpreted, data to be interpreted. So in that sense, i put that kind of material that's generated from ethnographic fieldwork in conversation with a range of industry-oriented texts, but also in relation to other sort of more primary texts, which is the films and television shows themselves that the industry produces. And finally, in relation to the way in which discourses about audiences shape industry producers' practices. In other words, Who are they imagining their audiences to be and how does that shape what they end up producing? So it's that sort of integrated approach that shapes what I do. Um, Now, I'll say that this takes a very long time to do. It's time-consuming. You need a lot of patience. Um, But I think the payoff is um, good because you're able to make some claims that otherwise you might not be confident making uh, about any one domain, be it the text, the audiences, or the industries.
0: Hmm. Uh, you you point to a, an interesting tension in, in the sort of work that you're doing here uh, which is that you're both sort of uh, uh, dealing directly with people involved in the industry and you're kind of reading them as texts you're sort of uh you mm-hmm. know, there's a there's a need to to be uh, Friendly, just on a human level, and sort of interact with them in a in a socially uh, uh, productive way. But then also, you need to remain that critical. You keep that critical distance, uh, yeah. and and that's that that might that seems you know that's hard in all academic contexts. But it seems like it might be particularly hard with people in this kind of uh, image conscious industry.
1: Well, absolutely. And one of the things that's become apparent to a lot of scholars now is the media industry produces a large number of texts, and they just reflect on their own practice. Um, So that's one place to begin, is to just begin with the acknowledgement that one doesn't necessarily have to do face-to-face ethnographic fieldwork, that in some contexts, the texts that the industry itself produces are often an enormously valuable source of data and information. Um, The other side of the coin, of course, is... Uh, how do you retain this critical distance even as you spend time on sets and and within dot-com companies and so on that I did for long stretches of time. And I guess I'll get at that question by saying that I was offered jobs in at least two instances because there was a recognition that they were asking the same questions I was about scale, for instance. How do you imagine an overseas market and so on? But the difference, of course, was that they would do they would ask these questions from a very narrow sort of monetization perspective as I was interested with slightly I had different objectives. Having said that though, I think the key is to again going back to what I mentioned as an integrated approach, is to set everything, my interactions with the industry professionals, the text that I was analyzing and so on within the historical moment. And to ask, well why now? Now so why did Bombay Cinema become Bollywood in the late nineties? 1990s and early 21st century? Why didn't it happen three decades ago? And once you start raising questions about conjuncture, immediately the project becomes a little more critical than just a straight-up descriptive analysis or just a description of changes in the industry.
0: And you point to in your response there of course one of the key questions uh, that structures the book, uh, and that is that transition from Bombay cinema to this entity known as bollywood uh, and yeah. One of your arguments in the book is that that we need to be careful to understand that this was an evolution that uh, uh, this is this, that, that Bollywood is not simply bombay cinema that there's much more to it. Uh, could you before we get into the details of it, can you talk a little bit about what 's at stake with that with that differentiation what What is the importance of Uh, Of noting the separation between those two things?
1: Sure, so one implication is in the realm of the media themselves. So it's no longer productive or fruitful to think about Bollywood primarily in terms of um, film. Uh, So it really is a multimedia or transmedia, if you want to use that term, cultural industry that generates a large sort of media output, which includes films of course, but also has very deep ties with cable and satellite television as well as emerging new media platforms. So both in terms of production and distribution, Bollywood cuts across multiple media platforms. Um, Music, for instance, circulates widely across the beyond the context of the films themselves, into top 40 radio rotations, into music channels, including MTV India and Channel V, and so on. So it's one of the key sort of arguments I had to make is this is a really fantastic site in which to understand what convergence means, and convergence culture has so far been analyzed primarily through looking at not even European, largely through an American sort of lens. And once you go down that road, you realize that there are other histories of convergence that one can tap into. So, for instance, in the introduction to my book, I talk about a moment from the late 1940s where there was a really fruitful collaboration between a small radio station in Sri Lanka and producers in Bombay. Uh, in which the film music that circulated reached a transnational audience at that point in time. So that's one intervention. The second is to simply recognize that Bombay cinema was still caught up in one one form or the other with a national imaginary, even though they did circulate widely. And uh, Bombay films have always been popular in Nigeria, for instance, for very surprising reasons. There's a long history of films migrating, circulating into the Soviet Union. But despite all of those earlier histories, there's something unique about the late 90s moment which has to do with the way the state begins thinking about the cinema. And for the first time, after nearly four and a half, five decades of keeping an arm's distance from the cinema, this Indian government decides to grant cinema industry status, starts redefining its approach to the cultural industries, and suddenly Bollywood becomes very useful for a state, for a government that's trying to redefine India's image in the world stage. Hmm.
0: And before we get into those details, just uh, for those listeners who maybe are a little, little less uh, uh, familiar with the literature, uh, would you what, what is the working definition of, of media convergence that you're using in this book?
1: Um, quite simply that we have to balance our understanding of media in terms of their specificity. In other words, if you're looking at film, what is it about the properties of that particular medium that give it its form, its shape, its aesthetics, and its circulation, and so on, while also recognizing that throughout sort of media and communications history, there have always been very fruitful relations across media in terms of industry practices, in terms of how audiences engage with media content, and in terms of aesthetics and textual practices. So that's the two parts of the definition of media convergence that I'm working with.
0: Right. So you and you, you, you noted a moment ago the uh that this is a story which is of course not just about the cinema, but it really has to do with India's changing place in the world over the past few decades. Uh and mm-hmm. can you lead us through this this, this sort of uh, confluence a little sure. bit? The uh the ways in which yeah. uh Indians repositioning has sort of been, been paralleled by yeah. Bollywood and that Bollywood has actually pushed it along. Yeah,
1: Um, so the story really goes back to the late 1980s and early 90s when there was a major economic crisis, a sort of balance of payments crisis is what economists would call it, uh, which led to India having to borrow huge sums of money from the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Um, And in a story that's familiar around the world in Asian economies and Latin American economies, borrowing money from these institutions means opening up your national economy to foreign investment in various sectors from retail to advertising to agriculture across the board. And this led to a complete change in the media landscape uh, beginning in the early 90s when the country moved from a single state-run television network to a more transnational space with the likes of Rupert Murdoch Star TV beginning to beam television into Indian homes. So this is what one would, sort a of, lot of people would refer to as economic liberalization that also leads to a lot of debates about uh, cultural uh, globalization. In other words, once a lot of influences from out of the country begin flowing in, in the domain of culture and politics and the economy, what does it do to the questions of identity at the national level, at the regional level, and at the level of individual everyday sort of lived experience? And that's where the media become interesting and useful is the Indian state realizes that its expat communities, its migrants who left India for to seek better opportunities in countries like the United States and the UK, were suddenly now being seen not so much as traitors who left the nation, but as people who, show, who sort of led the way in terms of thinking more globally. And so beginning in the mid, late 1990s in 98 to be precise, they began. the state began organizing a day of the diaspora in which they would invite prominent individuals from diasporas to come back and have a sort of celebration that was organized by the state. And part of the celebration, Bollywood was very much part of it. And in the same time that the state was going through all of this, Bollywood films began tackling life in the diaspora, and instead of portraying life in the diaspora as somehow being decadent and not being Indian enough and so on, they began carefully suggesting that notions of Indianness that people Mm -hmm. in the diaspora were working with were simply another way of being Indian in the world. Mm -hmm. That the nation no longer had some sort of exclusive right to define what it means to be Indian, and that what it means to be Indian has now become a transnational affair. Mm. And it's this confluence that defines the shift from Bombay to Bollywood. Mm.
0: And you note uh, in in the book and, and some really great uh, analyses of the films that that you can see this sort of uh, this changing notion of Indian identity in the actual films that are being produced. Uh, yeah. Could you lay out some examples, some of the more striking moments in in that era of of Bollywood cinema?
1: Sure. Um, two films stand out here. One is uh, called Dilwale Dulhania Le Jayenge, what's which- Popularly referred to as DDLJ, um, and this was one of the first films starring major Bollywood stars to tackle life in the diaspora, in the British diaspora, mm. in which the young hero and heroine end up moving back, or coming back to India to seek parental approval for their, for their marriage, uh, go through a series of conflicts. It's resolved, you know, happily in the end, of course. But then they return; they go back. Uh, because they're confident in their sense of who they are, even though they're in Britain. But the film that really transformed this is one called K3G, Kabhi Khushi Kabhi or Sometimes Love, Sometimes Sorrow, in which they don't even have to return to the nation, in which the, the protagonist's son, who was raised as a second-generation British asian he sings, he learns the Indian national anthem from his uncle, And he leads his British classmates in this rousing rendition of the Indian National Anthem in London, in a school in London. Mm. And he sort of slips up at the end and his mom completes the anthem. And it's a sort of lovely moment in which they acknowledge that, you know, in a a sense you could say, Indianness is at large uh, in the world. And that there is no reason to return to the country to claim a sense of national belonging. The national family is now a transnational family.
0: Now are these films being uh w- when they're being produced is is the uh diasporic audience uh, uh sort of at the center of this or is it more about creating a a different sense of indianness on the home front
1: I think it's uh, it's both um so ddlj is a key film and i mentioned it also because it changed distribution dynamics Uh, Because of the way in which it circulated and the kind of buzz it generated and the way in which it made money outside in Australia, UK, US and Canada, it really forced producers in Bollywood to sit up and say, hey, there's a market there. And there's a market in particular for certain kinds of stars and certain kinds of teams. And soon after, they began targeting the diaspora very effectively. The beginning in the mid-90s, a series of films that dealt with life in the diaspora became huge hits, both within the country and outside. And that also led to a lot of... Major companies, production companies, establishing formal distribution operations offices in, in places in New Jersey, in California, and other parts of the U.S., and of course in the U.K., Australia, and the Gulf states in the UAE, Dubai, and so on. So these firms also changed industry dynamics in terms of
0: distribution practices. And do we still has this trend continued. Has it grown since that moment in the in absolutely,
1: the yeah. So, the distribution now is even more systematic where two or three large companies that operate as vertically integrated organizations have now very formal setups across the world. And what they do is they strike distribution deals which with many of the smaller production companies. And you now see in most major media markets in the U.S., routinely, say, an AMC in a neighborhood AMC marketplace, for instance, will have one dedicated screen for a Bollywood film, for instance. And those sorts of deals began... Were being brokered in the late '90s and early 2000s, and now it's just no one bats an eyelid when they go to their local multiplex and see a Bollywood playing there. But it all really began in the mid 1990s. Hmm.
0: Now, you you detail really nicely in the book the uh, the the ties into sort of global media industries, ties into. Uh, uh, sort of the, the big international multinational multinational uh players in 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 the in the movie business. Uh you talk about Reliance's partnership with Dreamworks. Um can you tell us a little bit about that process of uh sort of uh multinationalizing or sort of being uh bring bringing these, yeah. these local companies and connecting them to the the the, the broader yeah. global media industry?
1: Yeah, that's really been a bit of a fraught process. Um and partly because um, the film industry in Bombay has so long operated uh, in a very family business oriented way. Most of the major production companies until very recently have been family owned. Uh, the way they manage to raise funds is through personal connections and often just using the one major hit, one or two major hits that they had and using the profits from that to fund subsequent projects and so on. And so one of the challenges they faced when the state decided in the late 90s to grant industry status and to make Bollywood a more professional, global-looking space of media production was the family companies had to sit up and say, how do we professionalize? And the buzzword was corporatize. How do we corporatize ourselves? Yeah. Um and the multinationals that came in, um, the big transnational studios like say Network 18, which is owned by Viacom, the ones that came in, they came in and they started speaking this very global business jargon. But they also quickly realized that these family companies had such deep ties in terms of financing and distribution and production and star networks that there were certain limits to the corporate logic too. So what's happened and what's unfolded in the last 10 or 15 years is this gradual arriving at a middle ground, both on the part of the family companies as well as the big corporates to say, okay, what we're talking about here is a culture of capitalism that doesn't fit neatly in either what we might call a family feudal mode or in what we might call a global industrial mode. It's really a hybrid sort of capitalist culture and we learn to work with each other. And so now we're seeing very interesting partnerships between, say, a family company that retains its identity as a family firm, but strikes distribution deals with a major studio to leverage that studio's network and its sort of scale in terms of distribution, for instance. Um, So there are interesting changes afoot in the ways in which relationships are being brokered. Um, Now, having said that, the family firms have done very well in terms of redefining their identity. Uh, they all have slick web pages. Uh, the second, uh, the younger generation of sons and daughters who run some of these family companies are very savvy. They can, when they need to, they can speak the language of sort of global business. But when they need to, they can also tap into a more vernacular, personal, kinship-based sort of language as well as mode of functioning when they need to do that. So they're really very smart and savvy in being able to straddle both cultures of capitalism come up with a very hybrid mode
0: Mm. what is the level of resistance uh, to that sort of uh, more uh, localized family-based approach uh, for organizations uh, that are that are sort of globally uh, integrated is this uh, is this something that uh, that they're still sort of fighting to change that you find sort of the multinationals um, uh, can they make peace with this I guess is my question
1: I think they have. So um, this was during the mid-2000s, there was a bit of a crisis in which um, the entire country was so flush with um, investments and cash that the big multinationals thought that they could simply do away with these family firms mm. by just muscling them out of the business. Um, but very quickly, they realized um, that that wasn't going to happen, for instance, uh, the long sort of family ties that family companies had built up with key stars uh, mattered more. Right. And so over time, they realized that it wasn't an either or kind of situation and that they would have to deal with, on the one hand, being professional, being tied into global networks, but on the other hand, being able to forge productive ties with long-standing networks within the city that still defined production logics. And once they found that, uh, once they figured that out, I think they sort of made peace. And now you're seeing. Very very interesting links across multiple spaces, across film, across television, and
0: so on. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the the place of Bollywood stars, and of course, uh, this is an industry that's been known for producing uh, megastars, very powerful uh, actors. Yeah. Uh, and how has that? How is the transition from Bombay cinema to Bollywood? What What has the role of the star been? How How the the Amitabh the uh, the sort of big names, do they do they have yeah. a, a different place of power now? Um.
1: Yes and no. Um so I mean even if even in a corporatized setup, um, the star image still matters. Mm-hmm. So the corporates recognize the value and the importance of a brand like Shah Rukh Khan, for instance. And Shah Rukh Khan himself is very savvy and he's very much a product of a global media landscape within India in which he not only does films but he's probably one of the most he probably endorses the most number of products across television and magazines and print and dot-coms and so on. So these are, stardom, in other words, is just as transmedia and convergent now as anything else. Now, having said that, what has changed in the last 10 or 15 years, and this has partly to do with the shift to a more multiplex mode of exhibition in which single-screen cinema halls are gradually giving way to multiplex cinemas across the country, is that studios and even the family companies are able to invest in smaller budget productions and in the process, open up the acting space to lesser known actors, to independent artists, and so on. So yeah, the themes are changing, the aesthetics are changing. It's quite an quite an interesting moment in terms of experimenting with aesthetics and genre, which is opening up a space for younger, other kinds of actors who normally would not would have had a very, very difficult time breaking into Bollywood. Uh,
0: you describe these sort of changes in, in the realm of aesthetics. Uh, are these generally, or are the changes that have been made recently, are they seen as originating from India, or are they seen as sort of being a, 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 a result of globalization, a result of uh, influence from across borders?
1: I think it's, as with the story of other uh, media and other sites of cultural production, here too, the only way to describe it is in terms of a very productive kind of hybridity. It's it's not imitation. That's not what's going on. Um, By the same token, it's not something that's completely, that we might call local, that it's somehow uh, originating from within either. Um, It's a very productive uh, moment in which We have entire generations of filmmakers and actors um, who are uh, bringing in some of their experiences with media in other parts of the world and trying out new things. Um, And this has always been the case, but it's even more so now, because, like I said, with the exhibition practice is changing, they now have the possibility to try out new things and still make money from these films, which wouldn't have been possible earlier. Um, So I'll give you one example with the... um, say, a 2004 firm called My Brother Nikhil, which was one of the first, you might call it, quasi-mainstream firm to deal with the question of homosexuality in India. Yeah. Um, and the only reason that it even circulated across the country is because it managed to tap into multiplexes and say, you can screen this uh, without much financial risk and still recoup some of your money, whereas if there had been a single-screen cinema hall, no exhibitor would have dared to touch it
0: right um yeah that it's a very different uh sort of exhibition context and and that we've been accustomed yeah. to the to the multi-screen cinema for for quite a while here uh in the United mm-hmm. states but but as you note, it really does impact not only the way films are watched but what films are watched what films get made mm-hmm. uh you mentioned with the the uh even the the, the companies that sort of remain uh, in in the hands of of these smaller sort of legacy families uh you you Note that they still, you know, despite sort of the, the legacy nature of them, uh, they need to utilize the web. They need to utilize the internet, uh yeah. in, in order to uh keep up. Uh can you talk a little bit about the influence of new media technologies and how sure. that sort of uh you know bumps into the traditional and uh and, and emerging elements of volume? Yeah. yeah. Um
1: so early on um in the early two thousands the web, in terms of thinking about it as a medium in the Indian context, was very much a diasporic medium Now that means two things a that the only way in which a dot com company in India could justify its existence and its funding model and so on was by demonstrating that it the non resident Indians were its biggest sort of group of visitors, and that they were the ones who were willing to pay money for various services and so on. The other way in which it was diasporic was simply because a lot of early dot-com um, set-ups in India were actually funded by venture capitalists and dot-com entrepreneurs who had made their money and their fame in Silicon Valley. These were young Indian expats. So there's this combination that made it a diasporic web that Bollywood companies realized they could tap into as well as a way to both understand but also begin targeting the overseas market. Now, that was the early phase, and it was important because... They use, these dot-com companies quite strategically use their metrics, you know, things like old-school notions about the number of eyeballs and ideas about stickiness and so on, to then turn around and tell the filmmakers, um, look, you know, here's a very concrete, imaginable audience. This is not in the abstract. We can show you that your trailer is being downloaded this many times in these parts of the world and so on and so forth. And that did convince a lot of these companies in Bombay that, yes, it's worth investing in the web. And they began thinking about it carefully. Um, The problem, of course, there is that they thought about it in a very narrow sense. So when they thought about the diaspora, they were primarily thinking about the first world diaspora. They were primarily thinking of the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia to some extent, leaving out in the process uh, the very vast Indian diaspora that spread out in other parts of the world as well. Um, The more recent... Um, shifts are in some ways more interesting because once um, YouTube became an established sort of more mainstream corporate space for distribution, you now see a range of Bollywood companies, both the family-owned as well as the large studios, using YouTube as a formal sort of distribution channel as well in many instances. Um, Now, what's interesting here is it's young second-generation entrepreneurs in the diaspora working in cities like New York that have helped... Companies in Bombay broker ties with companies like Amazon and Netflix and YouTube um, and Apple to say, here is a viable distribution platform. Don't worry about the multiplexes. Don't worry about the theaters. There's still a lot of leakage in terms of piracy. Instead, Put your money in new media online distribution instead, and you're beginning to see it happen a lot. So you, it's not just sort of web based, but even if you tune into your Comcast on demand, for instance, you'll often see a Bollywood film pop up there. Mm-hmm. And this is largely due to the efforts of diasporic entrepreneurs who've made the argument that uh, because they were born and raised here in the U.S., they understand American business culture. But they also then suggest that because of their Indian heritage, they also understand the way businesses operate in Bombay, that they can tap into their own past and their own heritage, and they play this very interesting middleman cultural broker role in forging ties between Bombay and LA.
0: And and have these these companies uh, based in Bombay have they been able to uh, make successful models in terms of uh, you know online distribution of of content? Are they able to get people to pay to download?
1: Um, They seem to be, or at least that's the argument that some of these companies based in the U.S. are making to them. Um, They're saying that these are models in which whatever the revenues are, even if it's not much, at least it's transparent to an extent. Um, And despite their best efforts, they just haven't been able to curb the DVD piracy that still Pretty rampant. I mean, you walk into any Indian-Pakistani-Bangladeshi grocery store, and you can pick up your latest uh, Bollywood DVD for you know anywhere from one fifty to two dollars.
0: Right. So you know you you talk about uh, the influence of the NRI, the uh, the diasporic audience. You talk about these yes. web entrepreneurs, uh, sort of telling people in Bollywood they should look abroad, they should consider uh, that audience uh you know reading the book one one question that that did come to mind is is do you see a, sort of a move away from uh attention being paid to that core local audience or uh, are these things not in contradiction is it is it not uh to, to threaten?
1: they're not in contradiction yeah. no you're right they're not in contradiction at all i mean at the end of the day their core audience remains within the nation mm-hmm. um and the 90s sort of phenomenon was a little short-lived in the sense that for a brief period the diaspora the diasporic audience had a bit more of a symbolic importance than the national audience itself but that seems to have quickly changed where now once the argument, once the understanding that we are no longer just a national family, we're a transnational family, that Indianness is much more transnational in nature. Once that shift was done, both in terms of industry logics, as well as a broader cultural imagination of who we are as a nation and who we are in terms of national identity, once that shift was done, Mm -hmm. we're now at the point in which there's a sense of confidence that what Bollywood does is for the nation, is for audiences within the country, but also just globally. And now you're beginning to see this shift where they're thinking not just about Indian diasporas as an audience, but non-Indian audiences in other parts of the world as also potential audiences for Bollywood films. And you're beginning to see interesting collaborations between companies in Bombay and uh, filmmakers and other companies in the UK, in the US, and so on. Um, um, and so the question, of course, is, you know, is Slumdog Millionaire a Bollywood film? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Um, and no matter, you know, what arguments we might mobilize to say yes or no, it's regarded as one. Um, or if you take a recent film, Mirana as the Namesake, a 2006 film, for instance, um, it's it's hard to say that Neera Nair is anymore a diasporic filmmaker. The film was funded by a Bombay studio called UTV. It was distributed across the world. Um, the actors were drawn from both the diaspora as well as Bollywood. Um, so in a sense, you know, when you think about filmmakers like Neera Nair, it Nair, it becomes clear that there's no neat separation anymore between the national and the diasporic.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and that's a, a really strong argument, one of, the, one of the real takeaways from the book. Uh, you do, of course... Show that the, these things do not always happen smoothly. Uh, one of my favorite yeah. examples, uh, and uh, you gave me a chapter of this uh, quite a while ago about about MTV Desi, uh and yeah. difficulty in sort of translating from uh, the idea of you know for, of of sort of multinational corporations have this trouble in understanding that a diasporic audience is not just Indians abroad. It's it's a right. it has right. its own identity. Uh, you talk about MTV Dacy, this this uh, failed television. Uh, Uh, effort by MTV. You describe it as a productive failure. Uh, It's one of my favorite examples. Could you talk us through the lessons of MTV Daisy a little bit?
1: Sure. Uh, MTV Desi was a fascinating and really important experiment in the American television landscape. Uh, Mr. Durrani, the brains behind it, basically recognized that Asian American youth broadly not just South Asian Americans Asian American youth uh, occupied this very interesting middle ground that they were transcultural uh, they didn't fit neatly within or at least mainstream American media weren't serving this very niche demographic uh, and he thought it was time to do something and he launched MTV World in which MTV Desi was one part of it he had MTV China and MTV Korea as also as part of this initiative um, the trouble with MTV Desi is less about this group's imagination, they actually understood. They got the idea that second generation diasporic youth are transcultural in nature that you can't just imagine them as simply being you know, clones of their parents and their parents longing for the homeland or somehow lingering with their kids and so on. They got that. They ran into trouble in terms of US media distribution logics where in the end instead of launching it say, a channel like BET, for instance, instead of launching it as that, they ended up positioning it in this very um, upscale uh, satellite television package for which you'd have to dish out 35 to $40 on top of your regular subscription to DirecTV. And this had both economic and symbolic implications. The economic implications, of course, not many people subscribed to it, so advertisers began complaining very quickly. The symbolic dimension, of course, is that, In situating MTV Desi within packed television programming from India, they were basically suggesting that Desi youth also belonged in that same space. And in fact, the most striking moment for me was when one of the MTV executives who was not directly involved in MTV Desi said, this is an attempt to connect youth here, Asian American youth, to their homeland. It's a sort of logic where no matter how long how many generations go past, you're still regarded as being from somewhere else. Hmm. It's that logic of being a perpetual foreigner uh, that was deeply disturbing. But it also tells us how far uh, mainstream media within the U.S. has to go in terms of thinking beyond the national. They're still caught up in thinking about race and nation in rather old-school ways. That they're failing to recognize the ways in which youth culture now operates on a transcultural, transnational sort of scale. That's
0: hmm. yeah, really a really engaging example. Um, so this is a book about largely about globalization, about the ways in which mm-hmm. uh, Bollywood spreads across the world. But of, of course, uh, you you are careful to note the impact of locality uh, and yeah. the, the impact of Bombay, of the actual. Uh, both the both the political, economic, but but also sort of the physical space that, that this takes place in. Uh, how is it that Bombay has shaped Bollywood? What what are the what are the attributes of the location or, or Mumbai, I should say, uh, for those who are more accustomed to that that name? Uh, what what is the relationship between this space and the industry that emerges from it?
1: Absolutely central in the sense that um, Bombay as a city is very much a a mercantile city which means there's always money floating around for various things including in this case filmmaking and this is what sort of shapes the industry's very beginnings in the early 1900s for instance um it's also a city that attracts migrants from all over the country but also other parts of the world which means it has a certain kind of syncretic cosmopolitan ethos that marks its filmmaking as well um it's also in a state um, in which the language of the state is Marathi, and yet it produces films in Hindi, which is the national language. So quite by accident, um, Bombay becomes uh, the national, uh, the location for the national film industry, mm. and that's what enables it to then now in this moment, in this historical moment, redefine itself as a transnational centre of filmmaking and media production. Um, and it's problematic in some ways also because there are other centers of filmmaking, Chennai for instance in the south, or Hyderabad in the south, that also have their own global circuits. But because of this accident of language and location, those industries have been labeled regional mm-hmm. industries, and for no other reason than that, they can't quite claim the transnational status that Bombay and now Bollywood is able to claim. Um and it's also sort of plays into what you've been describing as the politics that there is a politics to glob- media globalization, in which the Indian state privileges Bombay and Bollywood, and not the other regional centers of media production, which are just as influential in some ways, if not more so.
0: Hmm. So, taking a step back, we've we've talked through the the specifics. I think in in a, in a nice fashion. W- what are the real takeaways here from? The the perspective of, of the study of globalization of global media. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can we learn here about questions like hybridity or issues uh, like like uh, hybridity of identity, cultural homogenization, imperialism, neoliberalism? What, what should we take yeah. away from what you what you've discovered?
1: Um, I'd say two things mainly. One is one has to situate the emergence of um, global media from any part of the world very carefully within Mm. a specific historical conjuncture. Mm. And by that, I mean, if you're talking about, let's say, Vancouver as a major site of media production of, you know, sci-fi television, for instance, it doesn't make sense to talk about Vancouver's emergence as a media capital without understanding what happened through the late 80s and early 1990s in terms of an influx of capital uh, from Hong Kong and mainland China into that part of the world, for instance. So keeping in mind these big economic, cultural, and political changes and then trying to ground those in relation to whatever specific media capital or media industry we're studying is absolutely absolutely crucial. Being able to make those connections across scales is vital. The second thing is It's very difficult to make large generalizable claims about either homogenization or heterogenization or imperialism or localization. Instead of doing that, I think what's more productive is to think about the changing relationships between a capitalist mode of media production and questions of locality. And by that, I simply mean, for instance, if you take the Bombay cinema example, uh, you can't think of it as just neat evolution from one stage to another. Um, a commonly used term to describe the phase of globalization is to talk about it as a transition from Fordism to post-Fordism, the Ford being the assembly line manufacture of material goods, to post-Fordism which is more flexible, in which different parts of the same commodity are put together in different parts of the world and then it comes together in one location and so on. Something like that doesn't quite apply neatly. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, in the Bombay cinema context, even before we were talking about globalization, it was always post 40s because the songs and the playback singing and everything would happen in a very disjunct mode. It was not the assembly line that Hollywood had established. Was Bombay post-Fordist before we were talking about globalization? Maybe. Hmm. Uh, Maybe not. So these sorts of labels and categories don't apply neatly. Instead, what might be more productive is to think about different cultures of capitalism that exist in the world and the asymmetric and incongruent relationships among them and the ways in which those relationships sometimes are productive and sometimes generate enormous frictions between states, and media corporations in different parts of the world. And analyzing those productive linkages as well as those frictions is the only way we're going to get purchase on how to on what media globalization means and how it plays out in different parts of the
0: world. Mm. Yeah, you've certainly you've certainly put forward a, an excellent case study uh, arguing towards the, the notion of uh, disrupting our, our desires to put things into neat boxes. I think that uh, the way in which you show Bollywood to be crossing all these boundaries is, is very useful both as a specific study but also as a way to, to uh, train against uh, these sort of totalizing uh, conceptions of globalization. And, um, Last question we always like to ask is what you're working on these days. Uh, What can we look forward to reading from you uh, coming up?
1: Um, Two projects. One, I'm working on a book um, on the Indian television industry. It's co-authored with uh, a former mentor and colleague, Shanti Kumar, um, and this is for the International Screen Industry Series. It's an overview, a historical overview of the development of television in India, but also... um, charting developments over the last 20 years and bringing it up to the current moment of digitization or digitalization of television across the country. The second more long-term project is uh, thinking about the relationship between media and activism. I'm currently involved in a Social Science Research Council project on media activism and the new political across India, China, and the Middle East. It's a collaborative project, and I'm hoping that that will lay the groundwork for my next book-length project on television and audiences in digital India.
0: Well, I'm certainly looking forward to reading uh, both of those projects. Uh, our guest today has been Aswan Punam Tabekar uh, from the University of Michigan. Uh, his book, or his most recent book, is From Bombay to Bollywood, The Making of a Global Media Industry. Uh, it's available from NYU Press as we speak. And uh, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us today, Aswan.
1: Thanks, Matt. This was a lot of fun, and I look forward to hearing from some of your, um from your listeners.
0: I hope so. And if you want to, uh, if you want to reach out to me, it's at Media Studied. Uh, and what is your Twitter handle?
1: My Twitter handle is Aswin P. A S W I N P.
0: So if you listen and you've got a question for Aswin, feel free to to contact him directly. Again, thank you so much, Aswin, for coming on to uh, New Books in Popular Culture.
1: Yeah, thank you, Matt.